Good morning. I'm Ernie Johnson, founder of Anashira. You know, it's still summer, but it doesn't feel like summer. It feels like fall. It's cool out. The high temperature here in western North Carolina for the next three days is forecast to not even get up to 80 degrees, with lows down in the 50s at night. Whew. Leaves are already turning. I grow mint, a special spearmint. You know, I use the leaves for tea and I cook with them. But most importantly, I dry them. I grind up the leaves and I use them in my fields of Provence soap to give it a light exfoliating effect and some scent. Now you should try it. It has notes of lavender, rosemary, mint. It reminds me of the garden of the house Don and I used to rent in Provence just outside of Avignon. So, Enjoy the fading days of summer. Buy some bars of Fields of Provence and take a trip to southern France. Now, let me get to work and start on this week's episode of Stories from Anashira. Last week, we got back from Colombia, and I went up to UC Davis, and we're going to start this week seven years later. Now, if you're educated in German literature, and you've taught German and English as foreign languages, well, you're not the most sought-after person in the job market. So at the end of the 70s, I went to work for the Hertz Corporation, and I started in Fresno, at the bottom as a station manager in charge of Fresno, Visalia, and Merced. Now, this place had a profit problem, problems with internal audits. It had customer service problems. So I went to work there for the city manager. Now, I was going to tell you about some of my responsibilities, but you don't care about that. So I I had a lot of paperwork, daily reporting, fleet tracking, staffing, fleet planning, had to handle breakdowns of our cars all over Yosemite National Park, Kings Canyon, Sequoia National Parks, had to handle the business planning. And I learned a lot doing that, but what I really had to do was fill open shifts because if someone didn't come to work, they were sick, and we couldn't get anyone else to report to work that day, I covered it. So I worked so many shifts on the counter as a rental agent. If a service agent didn't come to work, I'd be out washing cars, and I'd be wearing my uniform. And my uniform was a black polyester suit with a white shirt and a polyester tie with black and yellow diagonal stripes going down it. Now, There were good points and bad points about this job. And some of the bad points were all that work and filling the shifts and working frequently seven days a week and nights and uh, doing anything my boss didn't want to do. But the good things were, number one, hey, it paid decent money. Not great money, but decent money. And number two, I got a free car to drive. And that was because we were considered test drivers. We tested all these products, most of them Fords. So I'd be driving home in a brand new 
Ford Thunderbird. I'd be driving a Mustang. I'd drive uh, whatever we wanted. Filled with gas, fresh out of the car wash. I remember I'd drive home one day. My folks lived there. And my dad said, Ernie, where'd you get that car? I said, well, dad, I get it from work. What do you mean you get it from work? Well, it's part of the part of my pay. I get to drive it. He said, I don't believe it. I said, well, see me tomorrow. I'll have a different car. That's it's the way it is. And you know what I really liked about this job is you knew where you stood. You had a report card every day. And what do I mean by that? Well, you knew how many cars you rented on the previous day. You know how much money per rental you got. You know how much money per day's rental. You know what your customer service is. It's easy. And your boss knew it. His boss knew it. Everyone else in the country knew where you stood. So if you worked hard and you got results, man, you would get ahead. And you know I wanted to get out of Fresno. So... The gym of Hertz in the Western U.S. in those days was San Francisco Airport, SFO. It had the best customer service. It had high profitability. It really didn't have any major problems. And it was run by a woman. Her name was Irene Easton. Now she's a long time gone from this earth. She had been a stewardess with TWA Airlines, active uh, in their union, and she was a financial genius, and she also was an operational wizard. Now, the company had offered her promotion after promotion for years. She turned them all down. She was legally blind. Now, she had an office and a meeting room at the Hertz facility at the San Francisco airport, and she could read with the help of a large magnifying glass. But her biggest strength was training people growing people, as we used to say. Now, if you were a young manager in the Western U.S. and you wanted to get on the fast track, you went to San Francisco and you did a tour of duty for Irene. Now, once she believed in you, and it took a while and a lot of work, she'd give the thumbs up and you'd get your own city, without a doubt. Now, if she didn't believe in you, you'd be gone, buddy. So after about a year and a half in Fresno, I got offered the position of assistant city manager at SFO reporting to Irene, and I jumped at it. I, I didn't even go home and ask my wife if she wanted to move. I said, we're out of here. In addition to most of the responsibilities that I had in the small Fresno operation, I had one more chore to do here. It was called meet and greet. Now, Hertz had dozens and dozens of VIPs, business leaders, major accounts, movie stars, film stars. And when one was scheduled to fly into SFO, I'd be tagged to go and meet them. So I'd get their rental agreement, drive their car down to the terminal, park it at the curb, have someone watch it, and I'd go up to the gate and wait for them. These are these were, of course, the days when you could walk right up to any gate you wanted. I'd wait for them and meet them. Now, most of the VIPs that I met in those days, well, they're gone now. Jimmy Stewart, Ricky Nelson, you remember the singer, Andy Rooney. And I told you before about my uniform. And I hated this uniform. It was hot. It was sticky. 
And there were many more VIPs, and almost everyone was polite, even friendly, with the exception of Andy Rooney. Now, you may remember him as the commentator for 60 Minutes. When I met Andy Rooney, he had returned a car to our facility at the airport. Now, customers normally had to go outside and wait for one of our big yellow shuttle buses, and that would give them a ride to the front of their terminal. But I met him, introduced myself, and said, Mr. Rooney, jump in the car. I'll give you a ride up to North Terminal to catch your flight. I don't want to ride. I'll catch a bus. No, please, Mr. Rooney, let me drive you. No, leave me alone. Mr. Rooney, it's my job to drive you there. I have to. Please get in. He's sulking away toward the bus stop with a crowd of customers waiting. I try to speak to him softly. Mr. Rooney, if I don't give you a ride, my boss, or certainly her boss, they'll fire me. And sir, I need this job. He looks at my badge. He stops. He stares me in the eyes. Mr. Johnson, you're the biggest pain in the ass I've met all week. Yes, sir, Mr. Rooney. That's possible. But just get in. Get in this car and I won't say another word to you. Man, he muttered. He blows air out of his mouth. And he gets in next to me in the front seat. So I drive him around the airport to North Terminal. It's six o'clock in the evening. Traffic's crazy. It seemed to take forever, and both of us stared straight ahead. Neither of us spoke a word until we got to the curb and I stopped the car. Mr. Rooney, you can get out here, sir. He opened the door, took his briefcase, and walked away without saying a word and without turning around. Now, I worked at this airport for nearly two years, and thank God I never had to haul Andy Rooney anywhere again. And that brings us to the heart of this episode. There was one VIP who was in and out of our operation more than anyone else when I worked there. He was a local boy who grew up in the housing projects of Potrero Hill. He was a man who rose from a troubled childhood. As a child, he developed rickets and wore braces on his legs until the age of five. In his early teenage years, he joined a street gang called the Persian Warriors and he was arrested several times. After his third arrest, he met with the baseball star Willie Mays, who attempted to persuade him to reform. Now, this man's father was a drag queen. He was well-known in the Bay Area. Later in life, he declared he was gay, and he died later of AIDS. This character's parents separated when he was five. He was raised by his mother. Do you know who I'm talking about? Okay, if you do, hang on with me. If you don't, I'll give you a couple more clues. He first went to San Francisco City College. Later, after he transferred, he was an aspiring track athlete. In 1967, in June of 67, he ran on the 4 by 110 yard relay team that broke the world record at the NCAA Track Championships in Provo, Utah. Still not sure? Okay, I'll give it to you. In 1967, he transferred to the University of Southern California. And after his world record on the track, he began playing football there. He played for coach John McKay for two years and led the nation in rushing both years. 
in his senior year, he rushed for 1,709 yards and won the Heisman Trophy and still holds a record for the Heisman's highest margin of victory. Yes, it was O.J. Simpson. Now, before I tell you how our paths crossed, I'll remind you briefly of what he did before I first went up to the PSA Gate 65 in my shiny black suit and for the first time waited for him to get off the plane. He graduated from USC, and in the 1969 NFL draft, he went number one in the first round to Buffalo, where he played for nine years. Now, he was the first player to break the 2,000-yard rushing mark. Before the 1978 season, the Bills traded Simpson to his hometown, San Francisco 49ers, and he played there two seasons. In 1975, Hertz was working on a new advertising push. Its advertising focused on the difference between Hertz and its competitors. Cleaner cars, easier paperwork, all that stuff. And the former executive director of their ad agency said, it just didn't speak to anyone. We needed a unique selling proposition. So they had focus groups with its customers, predominantly white male businessmen, And they told Hertz that speed of service was their main concern. The ad agency created a series of storyboards that showed an ordinary businessman, Mr. Joe Average, turning superstar and running over obstacles at an airport, jumping over everything and getting out first. The slogan, the superstar and rent a car. So the ad agency met with Hertz executives at their headquarters in uh, Manhattan And they started talking about sports. And they tossed around the idea of using an actual athlete to embody the theme of speed rather than Joe Average. The name of O.J. Simpson came up. Now, he'd been on an ABC TV show with other athletes that focused on speed. And he was the human embodiment of speed. So the ad agency reworked this idea featuring O.J. Simpson and presented it to Hertz executives. Now, the idea went right to the top, to the chairman and CEO, Frank Olson. Olson approved the idea, but he said only for a year with a clause for renewal. Now, Hertz, they were really worried about having a black man as a spokesperson. Just wasn't done in those days. So they presented it to Simpson, and he agreed to a deal. Paid him $175,000 for nine days of his time. These spots had the charismatic Simpson dressed in a business suit, gracefully dashing through airports on his way to pick up a rental car with white fans cheering as he sprinted by and only white fans. Now, the results were immediate and they were dramatic. Hertz's business surged. And the initial success thrilled Olson, who signed Simpson on for three more years at $200,000 a year. So, I'd been in San Francisco for a few weeks when I saw that O.J. was due one evening on a PSA flight arriving in Central Terminal. So, I get up to the gate early, a few people start deplaning, and then a few moments later out walks O.J. Now, he's tall, relatively tall, it's about 6'1", and he's built solidly like a rock, and he sees me in my black hurt suit and tie, and we walk up to each other. He sticks out his hand, looks at my name tag, and says, Hi, Ernest, I'm OJ. 
we turn around and walk down the concourse together, chatting the whole time. And many people recognized him. Hi, OJ. Hey, OJ. Now, he's very gracious. He signs a few autographs, and he chatted with me as if he'd known me for years. And I must tell you, I was impressed. So OJ had been filming commercials for over four years. He was retiring from the NFL, playing for the 49ers. And he was already acting in movies, and he traveled often from L.A. up to San Francisco. And Hertz decides to take the campaign up a notch. He'll move ahead from running through airports to flying through airports. And the first ad was to be filmed at SFO in 1980. So Irene asked me to help out. OJ knows you. Just help him with whatever he needs. So on the first day of filming, they hook him up in a harness, lift him up in the air with a cable attached to a big crane. And this was done in one of our ready car lots. So he's in the air. Uh-oh, someone says, he's got a hole in one of his shoes. Yeah, he did. And the bottom of his shoes were visible in the commercial. Hey, OJ, the director yelled. You have another pair of black shoes here? No, I don't. Why? You got a hole in one of your shoes. We can't shoot. They bring him down. So I get chosen to find OJ another pair of black shoes. Now, don't give me any cheap shoes, he says. Find me some nice shoes, size 12, something like Salvatore Ferragamo, size 12. All right. I drive over to Burlingame, which had some nice stores, but no Salvatore Ferragamos in size 12. And I knew the whole crew was waiting for me to get back with this pair of shoes so they could start filming. I finally found a pair of black Nun Bush shoes, size 12, dressy. It looked good to me, so I drive back to the airport. Sorry, OJ, no Ferragamos around here, not in size 12. These are the best I could get. Yeah, all right. He wasn't excited about the shoes, but they fit well enough. So he spends the next few days, much of them hanging around in the air from that crane in a very uncomfortable harness, but he didn't complain. I must say he was a pro. I used to run through airports, now I fly through them, he says in the commercial, with New Hertz number one express service. So the new ad campaign hits. The entire ad campaign for Hertz and for OJ had been a great success. Whereas he was known mostly before by sports fans, now it seemed like everybody knew him. A lot of positive things have happened because of those Hertz commercials, he said later. Not long after that, I drove down to Central Terminal one day, again to meet OJ on a flight from LA, and I see him getting off the plane with a beautiful blonde woman. He sticks out his hand to me, a huge hand, to shake mine. Ernie, I want you to meet my friend, Nicole Brown. Nicole, this is my friend, Ernie Johnson. Man, nobody called me Ernie, that hurts. It was Ernest. And OJ here, he's calling me his friend just like he's calling Nicole his friend. That's the charm and the gift that OJ had. It was special. So I'd continued to meet him regularly for the next year and a half. Then I left San Francisco and moved on to my own city for Hertz. And OJ continued to be a spokesman for Hertz until 1994. And Frank Olson loved his relationship with Simpson. 
The deal had Simpson playing Hertz sponsored golf tournaments, had him do meet and greets with Hertz customers and staff, heard him at had him attending social functions. Simpson was a regular member of Hertz Foursomes with Olson and VIP Hertz clients. The Simpson-Hertz relationship was so important that it was negotiated personally by Olson himself. Now you can imagine my shock when I heard in January 1989 that Simpson had been charged with assaulting his wife, Nicole, and arrested. They'd gotten married four years before that. She even had to be hospitalized. Now, Simpson calls Frank Olson soon after he'd been arrested. He told him the wife-beating charges had been overblown. They'd had too much to drink at a New Year's Eve party and had gotten into a fight, and someone had called the cops. Now, Brian Kennedy, who was Hertz Executive VP of Marketing, said that Nicole herself called Olson soon after. She told him the same things that OJ had said. She belittled it and said it was not a big deal and there was nothing to it. Now, the Hertz executives watched the public response. They were well, they were in contract negotiations with OJ at the time. And they decided to stick with their star spokesman, despite the wife beating charges, because there was really not much reaction from their customers. So I had left Hertz a year before that, and I did not think much about Simpson or Hertz or any of the news until June of 1994, when I hear that Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman had been stabbed to death outside of her condo in Brentwood, and OJ was a prime suspect. Now, Nicole and Simpson had divorced in 92, but there had been reports of attempted reconciliations. Obviously hadn't worked. So these murders occurred in, on June 12, 1994, and Simpson was declared a person of interest. But he didn't turn himself in. Who doesn't remember that famous low-speed chase down the 405 freeway? It was broadcast live on national TV. That audience was estimated to be 95 million people. Oh, that white Ford Bronco SUV? That belonged to Hertz. Hertz let me use it, Simpson told detectives in his first and only interrogation on the 13th of June. Oh, Hertz didn't immediately fire O.J. after his arrest. Its first response was, no comment. Hertz issued a short statement after his arrest on a plain sheet of white paper without even a corporate logo. The company was shocked and saddened by the development. Obviously, Hertz has no plans to utilize Mr. Simpson in advertising. Hertz will not make further comment. And that was it. You know, isn't life crazy? I had the greatest memories of this man for 12 years after I'd got to know him some. And then it all goes to hell. It's a heck of a crazy story. So, don't let me forget to answer one of your questions. And it reads, Hi, Ernie. Founder of Anashira, longtime listener, first time emailer. I have a question that I hope you will answer in this week's pod. Why did you start making soap? What makes you so passionate about it? Keep up the great pods. A listener. Well, listener, I really would like 
a name, but I like your questions, especially the second one. I started making soap because I had so much goat milk around. Too much to drink. Too much cheese made from it to eat. And uh, I'm passionate about it because these soaps are unique. No one else can duplicate them. And people seem to love them. They say it makes their skin feel great. They enjoy using it. They love the smell. People tell me they, one customer said, I leave the soaps in the drawer so my whole bedroom smells nice. You know, I love my goats. I really enjoy milking mama. And I enjoy being able to create new soaps. And most of all, I love not working for a big corporation. So, listener, I'll keep up with the pods. You other listeners, send me your questions. I'll get to them when I can. Hey, do any of you have kids heading off to college? Buy them some soaps to use in their dorms. They'll think of you when they use them, and they'll miss you even more. Thank you for purchasing our soaps. Tune in next week for another story from Anashira.